My global IQ is 109. Hi, everyone. I'm so glad that you've joined us for what will certainly be a lively conversation with famed author and attorney Scott Tarot. He's the author of 11 New York Times bestsellers, including his most recent, which we will discuss today, The Last Trial. Over the last few days, I've raced to finish uh, the first book that Scott wrote in 1987, Presumed Innocent, where Sandy and Kendall County were brought to life. And having read both books, I'm glad that we're in the middle of summer because I'm going to have to fill out my bookshelf. So, Scott Tarot. He is the author of 11 best-selling uh, works of fiction and two nonfiction books, including 1L. That's a book that I suspect, Scott, that a lot of people in this audience have read because it was described uh, your years as a law student at Harvard University. And your books have been translated into more than 40 languages. And imagine this, 30 million copies have been sold worldwide and many have been adapted into movies and television projects. And in fact, uh, I enjoyed watching Presumed Innocence just uh, a few days ago. And I suspect as well that many in our audience have followed your op-eds in the New York Times, as well as some of the long form articles you've written in Vanity Fair in the Atlantic. There's more about your bio, but we're gonna talk about that during our conversation. So again, you're in Wisconsin. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. So every so often, people like you and uh, Larry Wright, who wrote The End of October, you just have impeccable timing. Yeah. So the last trial focused on real two legal issues beyond perhaps the murder part of it, and that was drug regulations and insider trading. I'm particularly interested in why, knowing that you take three to four years to research and write a book, why did drug regulation pop up? Well, this is a slightly long-winded explanation, but and I had thought about the drug industry as a topic for a while because healthcare occupies such a huge part of our economy, and I didn't think I knew enough about it. Sandy Stern has appeared as a character either in the foreground or passing in the background in virtually every one of you know my twelve novels. In Innocent, which was a sequel to Presumed Innocence I published about 10 years ago, Stern had stage four non-small cell lung cancer. And he was the worst, worst for it. He was ravaged uh, by a rash and its suits gaped on him. And uh, after the book came out, people who followed my work began to write to me and say, oh, please, please say Sandy Stern isn't dying. <laughs> and Instinctively, I said, no, 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 Stern, Stern's not dying. But as I was writing my last novel, Testimony, where Stern, this typical, passes by in a single paragraph. He's a guest at a barbecue. And it said that he was living in the alternate universe of cancer remission. I was like, how could it be that this guy has lived so long with what is usually a devastating disease? And I said to myself, well, you know, maybe he's, maybe there's some new cancer therapy that has prolonged his life. And at that point, the sort of two impulses began to marry. And I had my, I, that's how I decided I was coming back to Stern, because there was a miracle drug keeping him alive. 
my natural curiosity about this industry. So that was ended up being the starting point. And in fact, Bill Sheehan, in the review of the last trial in the Washington Post, I love what he said. He goes, the reader is painlessly educated on the arcane rules of drug approvals. Yeah. yeah. Arcane, they, they are. As I have said, I found the law governing drug approval uh, to make the internal revenue in, internal revenue code look like a nursery rhyme. This is the most complex body of laws uh, that I've ever encountered. And clearly, as we have this race warp speed to find a vaccine for COVID-19, what concerns you about the process as you've observed it right now? What risks are there? Again, you know, I, I frankly write my novels, first of all, to be entertainments and not and not as platforms. But if you are interested in what can go wrong with a rushed approval process, the last trial certainly shows that. Because the medication created by Kirill Pafko, Stern's client, uh, in the last trial, because the medication is for such a serious disease and appears to be so successful, uh, it's on what's called an accelerated approval program at the FDA. And as that one-year period, which is normally three to four years, uh, is close to uh, closing out, uh, evidence emerges, which the government says was suppressed, that some people are dying from this medication, G. Livia. And, and that's a case in point, which is that uh, if we rush things to market, we don't know what the long-term effects might be. Uh, and that's a chance uh, that, um, you know, we may be taking if we push a vaccine onto the market. Uh, it would help uh, and protect millions. Uh, but if it kills people along the way, uh, that may be, in other words, the cure may be worse than the disease. And, and I really like this sentence that you wrote about Marta, who is, of course, um, Sandy's uh, daughter. Uh, here she says, and how often does it happen, Dr. Rob, uh, from the FDA, that a sponsoring organization like a pharmaceutical manufacturer fails to comply with each and every one of these regulations during a clinical trial? And Dr. Rob responds, I would guess it happens every day. Right, right. And that's that's really a testimonial to how complex the regulatory scheme is. And with no disrespect to the people at the FDA, how often uh, the provisions, frankly, are self-contradictory so that um, it, it may even be impossible for somebody to go, uh, a drug sponsor to go through a clinical trial uh, without violating some rule because the rules point in two different directions. Take a moment, because I didn't know what this was at first, um, CRO, the Clinical Research Organization. Because again, as all these companies across the globe are looking for the vaccine or vaccines, CROs are going to play even a more important role. Yeah, they, they are. And the whole drug approval process um, is an industry unto itself. And again, that's because so much well-being and money is at stake. But the clinical research organizations essentially do the testing 
for the pharmaceutical companies so they don't have to maintain the infrastructure in-house to be doing that. And very often the CROs, the clinical research organizations, use investigators, to say physicians, research physicians all over the world. So a lot of the drugs that you're you're taking were tested at sites not only in the US, but you know, in Romania, in South America, some African countries, you know, wherever there's a doctor who can line up clinical trial participants. Those results are reported to the CRO. The CRO then comes back to the pharmaceutical company with the results. And of course, having an outside entity is also beneficial in maintaining the blind nature of clinical trials. That's important too. I, I guess my last question on this is, you know, there's been discussion that the Trump administration has rolled back some of the regulations on various industries as well as the pharmaceutical. Have you, are you aware of anything that might affect a search for a vaccine or anything else on that? My expertise is only deep enough to impress readers. If you actually know this industry, I've been really pleased by the number of emails I've gotten from people who work in this world who say, gosh, this book is surprisingly accurate. But to answer a question like that, way beyond. So what about the other foundation underpinning of the book, and that is insider trading? You certainly do uh, mention in several parts in the book about how insider trading is so complex and people that you expect to get off don't and those that should be <laughs> are, are innocent. So what are your thoughts about that? And why did you bring that in as, a, as such a pillar of this book? Candidly, that's something I know more about. Um, having been in a white collar criminal practice since I left the US Attorney's Office in Chicago in 1986, uh, I've had no end of cases where insider trading was suspected or, uh, sad to say, sometimes proven. So, uh, and this is an area of the law that I have uh, watched evolve with some vexation. If you want proof that the amount of resources that defendants have can change the nature of a body of law, uh, you can look at insider trading where the number of loopholes that have been created very often by the courts is large. And I contrast that Stern, the main character, thinks about the difference between being found in possession of a recently stolen treasury check, where you're presumed to know it was stolen, versus being in possession of Mm. confidential insider information where there's no similar presumption. Uh, We have a question from Jeff Curtis. He says, forgive me, I haven't read your novel. Do you address or mention right to try experimental drugs that haven't completed trials? The the accelerated approval process, which is not the normal way things go, does allow drugs to come to market after a year usually, with the understanding that the the sponsoring organization, which is a fancy term for a pharmaceutical company, that they're going to complete the clinical trials while the drug is on the market. And uh, the thought, of course, is that these are uh, medications that are so important that it's worth taking a little more risk to put them on the market, but we don't really know what the little more risk is. You know, there have been instances like with the swine flu vaccine 20 years ago, 
where it turned out that in order to keep people from getting the flu, several people ended up getting paralyzed from Guillain-Barre syndrome. It's all balance of harms versus rewards, and but the flu does kill people too. Uh, I do know that when my doctor asked me to have a, an injection recently because I don't have a spleen, and he said, but you can get Guillain-Barre, you know, one case out of 10,000, I was like, thank you very much. I'll take my risks on uh, whatever it was, pneumonia, rather than paralysis. Right. And, you know, you touch on this, but I suspect, depending on how the rollout of the vaccine happens, there may be people who seek to corner it or get it on a black market or have it come in an unmarked bag from India or who knows. We don't even want to think about what's going to happen when this vaccine is announced. And, you know, everybody's going to want to be inoculated, understandably. Uh, and I don't know what kind of protocol will exist, although, you know, we, we all suspect that players in the NBA and NFL will somehow end up first in line. <laughs> well, you know, it's always a delightful challenge to uh, have a discussion with someone who's written a book of fiction because you don't want to give it away, but we certainly want to pique the reader's interest. But one of the things about your book is it really is, in a sense, an evolution of generations. Sandy is stepping down. Uh, his daughter, who's been with him in his law firm, she's retiring for reasons of her own to spend more time with her family. And then you introduce, I don't know if it's a totally a new character, but certainly I think she takes on a, a greater role. And that is Pinky, who I think I'd rather have as my granddaughter than my daughter. Yeah. But tell yeah. us about Pinky and I ho do you have a granddaughter like Pinky? <laughs> I don't have a granddaughter like uh, like Pinky. I have a a, a wonderful sudden blooming of grandchildren in my life, but there are five of them, and the oldest one is seven and a half. So no granddaughters like Pinky, uh, nor a daughter like Pinky. One of the things that uh, you find when a novel is going well is that there is a character who appears, which frankly Sandy Stern was in the writing of Presumed Innocence, a character who just suddenly comes along, uh, who sort of runs away with the book in the sense that, you know, the character as Pinky does, has a sudden claim on the author's heart and attention. Pinky is Stern's granddaughter. She's got a one inch uh, common nail through her nose. Um, she's tattooed from stem to stern as far as we can tell. Uh, and uh, she is, uh, you know, belligerent by nature, doesn't like to take direction, it, but is remarkably intuitive and passionately dedicated to her grandfather as he is to her. And she becomes a very important character that's fairly clear from the prologue to the, to the book where uh, Stern collapses and she runs out and smashes a defibrillator case she can't get it open, so she literally drives her fist through it and returns to the courtroom bleeding knuckles. And that's, that's Pinky in a nutshell. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. 
So you, you brought up about, about the prologue. Do you have a prologue in every one of your books? No, the, the prologue, um, the prologue really was a contribution by my editor, Ben Severe. And uh, I finished uh, the initial manuscript of the last trial earlier than expected. And that's always bad news for the author, because that means your editor has more time to pester you. Uh, and so as I went through the subsequent drafts under Ben's tutelage, he kept saying, you know, there's something missing at the beginning. I just want a little more at the beginning, you know, because there's a lot of technical stuff and courtroom stuff, and it's inevitable. We've got to get the book moving. I quite far along, I thought I had finished the book. Ben came back and said, what would you think about a prologue uh, that begins at that moment where Sandy collapses? And my immediate reaction was, oh, God, that's a terrible idea. My agent hated it. Uh, my closest friends, my wife, we all read the manuscript by then, said, that's terrible, don't do it. But I thought to humor him, I would try it. And I ended up writing the prologue in about three hours. Once I was done with it, we all realized Ben was exactly right. Dramatized, because the book is written in the close third person from Sandy Stern's point of view, you don't really know much when a character collapses in the close third person. So to see this event from the outside suddenly was an insight into an inherently dramatic moment in the book uh, that it had previously lacked. And so uh, the prologue, I thought, worked, although I teased Ben, you know, the, the New York Times review of the book was generally adoring, but uh, Janet Masklin dis dismissed the, the prologue as, quote, histrionic. And I, and I wrote to Ben, because one of the things I had said to him, as I said, the one thing about this I know is that some critics somewhere will object to it. So when, when Janet did, I was able to say, see, you know, I'm, I'm not a complete clown. Well, it, it's not hurting the sales at all, that's for sure. So you mentioned writing in the close third person and presumed innocent was written in the first person. It was. Again, full disclosure, I've not read all of your books. Was that, is that a departure? No, I've gone back and forth between first person and third person. Of what people don't notice as much is the present tense or the past tense. Uh, presumed innocent is first person present tense, which was a little more unusual uh, in American narrative at the time that I did it. Um, Walker Percy's The Movie Goer is written in the first person present tense, but not many other books have been. Uh, at that point when Presumed Innocent was published in 1987. It really is something that I feel my way toward, past or present, third person or first. Uh, without giving too much away, I have been um, working on a novel in which Pinky, the granddaughter, is the central character. And I found myself, as, as sometimes happens, dictating passages out loud as I was driving down the highway. So I was punching the phone and going, you know, Siri, take a note. <laughs> and, uh, after, you know, several months of working on this, uh, all of a sudden it was coming out in the third person. I think that was a eureka moment, that the third is the way this next book should be written. But that, that's kind of emblematic of what an author goes through in the early stages of writing a book. 
what advice do you have for lawyers who want to become better and more engaging writers? Of course, you've gotten that question probably thousands of times. And in looking at your bio, you're a graduate of Amherst College. Were you on a path to become a writer first? Because after Amherst, you went to, to Stanford. And, and, and tell our guest about that experience at Stanford and how that led you to then go into law school. Well, first of all, to answer Hanson's question first, um, I, simple is better. And one of the things I've discovered as the years have gone on is that in order to simplify something, you actually need to understand it very well. So lawyers sometimes, uh, since we are all uh, capital BS artists uh, by, by uh, professional nature, uh, lawyers sometimes uh, complexify their writing in order to um, hide the fact that they don't fully understand uh, what they're talking about. So my first word of advice is always simple declarative sentences whenever possible. In terms of my own background, by the time I was 11 years old, I had declared that I was going to be a novelist and went off to college with that goal and noticed that more of the American novelists that I admired, people like uh, Larry McMurtry or Ernest Gaines or Robert Stone, had all been writing fellows at Stanford. So that was my goal. I figured if I became a writing fellow at Stanford, I would be confirmed as a novelist. And in some ways that was true. Uh, I went out to Stanford as a writing fellow for two years, then was hired uh, as a lecturer in the English department to teach creative writing classes, which was a way to support some of the young writers uh, for a few more years. The writing was not going spectacularly. Uh, certainly I didn't think I was gonna be able to support myself as a novelist. Uh, and I was, but I was blundering toward a career in academic English. I made some good choices as a young person, like all of us, some bad choices. One thing I recognized though, and I've always been grateful for, is that I was not cut out to be an English professor. So those questions are not natural to me. What I was fascinated with was the law. My college roommates had all you know, marched off to law school. They were all practicing. The friends I was making in the Bay Area who weren't at the writing center were all lawyers. And I just had this incredible innate interest in the law, which was a shock to me because my dad was a doctor who, as I like to say, was a prophet in his own time in the sense that he hated lawyers before it was common for, before it was common for doctors to do that. So I didn't know any lawyers because my dad wouldn't let them in the house. So when I found out what lawyers did, I just, I thought it was great. And rather than accepting one of the frankly very good job offers I had received, I decided to go to law school. The problem was that what hung in the balance was my mission to be a novelist. Purely as a mode of apology, I wrote to my then agent and I got halfway through the letter in which I was saying, but I'm gonna continue to write and I thought, oh, this sounds pretty lame. And so I said to her, you know, one thing I've noticed is nobody has written a book about the actual experiences of law students. I wasn't, if you read the letter closely, proposing that I write that book about the actual experiences of law students day by day. But uh, she misinterpreted it, showed the letter to 
an editor named Ned Chase, uh, and Ned bought the book on the spot. And so I ended up going to law school after having years and years of rejection slips with a contract to write a book about my experiences as a first-year student at Harvard. And that was 1L, which, to my good fortune, is still in print. So one of the things that you and I talked about yesterday, and you were beginning to tell me, and I said, no, let's hold it, and indeed we do have a question, and that is, going back to presumed innocent, when you were writing the book, did you laugh to yourself at how people were going to react to the oh my God moment in the book, and were you happy with the movie version? So two questions there, but you and I touched on the movie version yesterday as well. Yeah, I have to admit that being a novelist, especially one who works in the mystery genre, and of course, The Last Trial, like all of, uh, all of my previous novels, is fundamentally a mystery. A at some points, you're like uh, a ruthless god who is laughing at his creatures, in this case, readers, knowing that you uh, are fooling them and, uh, you know, including red herrings and trying to disguise things. So, you know, when you hit upon what you think is a great aha moment, there is a sort of, you know, rubbing of the hands in glee and saying, yeah, they're never going to get this. They're going <laughs> to never see this one coming. So, and there was the second part of the question that was about the movies. About right? the movie version. Yeah, and, you know, like I asked you yesterday, you know, I've met with authors who have been very disenchanted with the whole process, and yet you've been very involved and actually written some of the screenplays. Yeah. But how do you I, feel I, about I, Presumed Innocent? Uh, first of all, I thought Presumed Innocent was a really good movie. The lady, Alan Dukula, who became a good friend, just treated me like a prince. I'm ever grateful to him for that. One of the things, and one of the reasons most novelists are not happy if they don't get what I'm starting to say is that you cannot expect another creative person, let alone somebody like, like Alan, you know, who'd made all the president's men and uh, produced To Kill a Mockingbird. You can't expect Alan, a major creative presence, not to put his own mark on the film that he's making. If you accept that, then you know that the movie is going to be something different from what you envisioned. As you pointed out, Jim, the movie is, in fact, very faithful to the novel. Even so, I had certain differences with Alan. There's a sort of dark core in Presumed Innocent that I wanted him to hint at more. He didn't feel comfortable doing that. But overall, I was very, very well served by the movie of Presumed Innocent. And uh, any novelist who has a good movie made from her or his book has come out ahead in this game. But you can't expect that. And, you know, Ernest Hemingway's advice for all novelists was take your manuscript to the California-Nevada border, throw it over the border, grab the check, and run like hell in the other direction. His point was have nothing further to do with it and you know, you will expect nothing and therefore you won't be disappointed. But did not focus groups play a role in sort of adjusting the ending? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. One of the things in the, in the original screenplay of, of Presumed Innocence, and I, I, I always avoid spoilers and I will here, but the studio was concerned that the murderer in Presumed Innocence was getting away scot-free. And they thought that American audiences would not accept that, that, you know, evil must always be punished in the movies. 
So they created an ending where the murderer was sent away to a mental home. That became the ending of the movie. I objected to it, and my objections meant nothing. When the studio audiences, as Harrison Ford described this to me, began to throw their popcorn boxes at the screen in objection to the way the movie ended, Alan and the studio executives took the hint and changed the ending of the movie. So if you go back and see the movie of Presumed Innocent, and it, to my good fortune, seems to be on an endless loop on cable, you will see that the last shot of the movie is the first shot of the movie, the empty jury box. And what happened was they cut their original ending and Harrison Ford recorded a new voiceover for that end. They got out of the movie quickly, which was the right way to handle all of this. And the author uh, felt somewhat vindicated. So we have a question from Stephen Amante. Do you know the end of a novel before you start or does it take its own flow and it's determined while you're writing? Well, the answer varies from case to case or book to book. There was a scene when I wrote the first novel about Sandy Stern, The Burden of Proof. When I wrote The Burden of Proof, there was a scene I wanted to get to at the end where Stern is hauling around a dead body. And I, I knew that was a point of arrival. I had to figure out whose body he was carrying around in his car and stuff like that. But I, I had that in mind. If you talk about the last trial, I had no idea. I had no idea whether Kirill Pafko Stern's client was innocent or guilty. If he wasn't guilty, then who committed the crime? None of that. And I felt my way toward that as I was going through the first draft of the writing. It really does differ. And of course, figuring it out, pretty important. But at, at this stage, having written 12 novels before, I have a lot of faith in my process and I know I can begin and that the answer will make itself clear to me as I'm going along. Thanks so much for sharing with us your, your passion, commitment to the law, your literary talent. You really have had such an impact in so many fields. Thank you. And Jim, thank you for being so well prepared. It's always a delight. Thank you. Well, thank you.